If the flood described in Genesis chapters 6 through 9 really happened, what kind of scientific evidence might we expect to find today? Is the Grand Canyon evidence of a global flood? And are the physics today the same physics that were back in the time of Noah? How do we know the rocks are as old as scientists tell us? And what about fossils on the tops of mountains? On part two of our discussion about Noah's flood with astrophysicist Dr. Hugh Ross of Reasons to Believe, we examine some of the scientific differences between an old earth creationist point of view and a young earth creationist point of view about the biblical flood. More importantly, we emphasize the need for us as Christians to demonstrate our love for one another even when we disagree. And Dr. Ross even compliments me on my haircut. Here once again is Dr. Hugh Ross. So let's get into the, the young earth, old earth difference in science. And I want to kick it off with a question a friend of mine had. So, okay, Dr. Ross, here it is. Um, it's not a global flood. All right. I want to know what did the boundary condition of global flood waters and the non-inundated aspects of the planet that remained look like? Was this a giant bathtub with a sort of crater-like ring around it? What was, what's the science behind the wall of water where, it's, where the wall, water stops and the land is what, whatever land is left? Is, are we looking at something like the, the Amsuf or the, the wall of water on both sides? What, what do you think from a scientific perspective? I do think the wall analogy has some validity uh, because if you look at the geography of the Persian Gulf, the uh, Mediterranean plain, uh, parts of Persia and Arabia, they're ringed by these mountains. And so it would be kind of almost like a bathtub type analogy. That would assume, however, that humanity was limited to maybe one or two million square miles. But there's actually genetic evidence that sustains that, uh, that humanity began local. And roughly around 40, 45,000 years ago, humanity began to spread out. And you actually see this in the chapters that follow the flood text. Genesis 10 and 11 talk about how after the flood, humanity repeated the same disobedience that was done by Adam's uh, uh, descendants. God told Adam and Eve, multiply and fill the earth. They didn't do it. They stayed in one place. And after the flood, God repeats the command, multiply and fill the earth. And what do we see in Genesis 11? A rebellion against God where they say we're going to build this city and this tower so that we will not be scattered over the face of the earth. We'll be one people in one place. And I write in my book, Navigating Genesis, that's a prescription for oppression where you got one nation over all the peoples of the world, one government over all the peoples of the world. That government will oppress its citizens. As it says in Genesis chapter 10 and 11, multiple nations, he gave different peoples uh, natural boundaries. And if you look at the seven continents of the earth, they're filled with these natural boundaries, big rivers, mountains, uh, deserts, uh, you know, glaciers, lakes, uh, oceans that are designed to create natural boundaries that allow a small nation to exist next to a big nation. And so I basically use the principle, this was God undertaking antitrust legislation. Uh, just like we don't want one corporation controlling a single product, because if you know that happens, based on the selfishness of humanity, uh, that corporation is going to oppress the customers. Right. And so right. we break up these trusts. 
and say, no, we want free market competition. Yes. Likewise, goal was that there be free market competition amongst different nations of the world for the citizens of the world. Mm. And the United States, I think, is one example of a country that benefited from that free market competition. Mm -hmm. There were nations in Europe that were oppressing their citizens. So what did they do? They came here to America. Yeah, yeah. So likewise, I think we in America have got to be careful uh, to ensure that we don't become oppressors. Okay. Um, Second question for my young earth friends. Um, and I know this could be a whole hour and a half itself, so I, I understand that that I'm we're we're limited by the nature of the interview, so I don't expect you to be comprehensive. Sure. Um, this, I afforded the same courtesy to Tim. I'm like, I know we're asking you very complicated, difficult questions that could be unpacked in a two hour lecture at a forum somewhere, but uh, uh, condense, if you will. Why? I, or, or I don't. I'm not sure. I really know. And maybe you said it, and I missed. It. I didn't see the entirety of the video, but. What, what what's your position on the the Grand Canyon? My young Earth friends think this is the creme de la creme evidence of a global flood, and so what's your position on that? Well, you're asking me earlier about the scientific uh, evidence yes, for yes. the different flood models, and to me, the key principle is the many times the Bible tells us the laws of physics do not change. Mm. Jeremiah thirty three, God says to the Jews, "You change your mind all the time." Mm. But I'm a God that's immutable. I'm a God that does not change. Mm. As proof, look at the laws that govern the heavens and the earth. The fixed As order. don't change, I don't change. That's a theme you see in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a theme you see in Romans 8. It's a theme you see in the early chapters of Genesis. Mm. God set up these laws of physics that are constant. And Romans 8 tells us they'll remain in effect, constant and fixed, until the full number of humans that God intends to redeem have been redeemed. Mm. And clearly that number has not yet been reached. Right. So right. it tells us the laws of physics have not changed. And as an astronomer, I can tell you, we can scientifically prove that. Mm. Uh, astronomy is unique discipline. We have no access to the present. All of our data comes from the past because right. of the finite velocity of light. However, the farther away we look, the farther back in time we see. Mm. And the farther away we look, we can measure the laws of physics by the spectral features of the light from the stars and galaxies. Mm -hmm. And those measurements tell us there's been no change in the laws of physics over the entire history of the universe. And we can measure the lack of change to 16 to 18 places of decimal. Mm. So very accurately, we can affirm that what the Bible stated thousands of years ago is indeed correct. Mm. It's an example of proving the Bible's capacity to predict future scientific discoveries. But why this is important, I've debated several global flood proponents over the years. Mm -hmm. They all admit the only way they can sustain a global flood interpretation is with laws of physics that change by a factor of a million or a trillion times Uh, pardon me, a million or a billion times at the time of Noah's flood. And my point is, we got biblical texts that tell us that did not happen. And we got astronomical measurements that tell us that did not happen. Mm. Uh, However, uh, every single global flood proponent I've ever engaged says we cannot make our model work scientifically without radically altered laws of physics. For example, they have to explain how the floodwaters cover the whole face of the earth. And they always appeal to aggressive plate tectonics, uh, that there was movements 
uh, in the crustal uh, plates of the earth that all happen within a five-month window. Uh, well, in order to make that happen, they need certain constants of physics to be different by at least a factor of a million, if not a billion times. And so, for example, every global flood proponent basically says something happened to the radiometric decay rates mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that actually permitted the possibility of a global flood. However, uh, when I debated Marcus Ross, uh, he did say we were really struggling with the problem that these long-lived radiometric uh, isotopes are, are in our human body. Mm. We got potassium-40 in our human body. We got uranium-238. We got thorium-232. And if you accelerate the radiometric decay rates in order to make a global flood model possible, you wind up vaporizing the bodies of every human being and every animal on the face of the planet. Mm. And the biblical text tells us that didn't happen. And it would have happened to Noah and uh, his uh, family as well. Mm. Clearly, that did not happen. Okay. And the Bible actually tells us, no, we're not talking about the potassium-40 decay rate being accelerated by a million times. That's okay. not what we're talking about. Now, so I think scientifically, we've got a, we've got a problem here. Yeah, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a big challenge with, uh, with starlight. I know you have a unique perspective on the starlight time issue and how we read that in Genesis. Um, I know a couple of I know some young Earth objections to these questions, so I'm, I, this is not for debate, sure. but but for you to address. Right. Um, and I'll probably forget all of them, and I'm, I can hear my friends now going, "You didn't ask him about this," and so I apologize ahead of time to any of my friends that are listening that if I forgot your question. Um, but well, but you know, for the sake of listeners, I do address <laughs> them all in uh, this book. Yeah, so if, if you want to, I read yeah. all their arguments. Right. And, and by the way. People can get a free chapter of this book just by going to reasons.org slash Ross. Okay, so there you go. If I forget a question, you've got a resource there. It's already there. It's already there. I think that's the chapter we're giving away, too. So okay, great. Fantastic. And we'll we'll link that, actually, in the description notes of the podcast for everybody. So if you're interested in a free chapter of that, uh, click on that link, and we'll uh, you'll send you over to Dr. Ross's uh, ministry, and you can check that out. Um, but question for you live here. Um, let's take Joshua 10, right? So there's a pretty phenomenal intervention on God's behalf. Like if, if that really happened, you know, the physics is like, I mean, this is, this is something I hear from skeptics all the time, dude, the, you know what, you know what stopping the sun would incorporate in terms of all the physics that would be sort of interrupted or whatever. Um, why can't, uh, the flood, if we're t speaking from a global young earth perspective, why can't we, um, go there? You know, why can't, if, if that's, if we're stopping the sun, it seems like covering just one-fourth of the landmass of the Earth with water doesn't seem like a big deal. When you're talking about stopping the sun, I think the moon stopped too. And in addition, you know, the idea that the Earth was once all water in the beginning of creation, um, these are some objections that I've heard. What, what do you say to those things? Yeah, going to the Joshua text, uh, we need to understand that's written in Hebrew, biblical Hebrew, not English. Mm -hmm. A lot of English translations put it that God stopped the rotation of the Earth. Yeah. <laughs> it happened, there would have been zero survivors. Right, right, right. Um, and actually, if you go to people who are fluent in biblical Hebrew, they'll tell you that's not what the text is saying. It is saying that there is either an extended period of light or an extended period of darkness in the mm. Valley of Agilent. Okay. Now, my wife and I visited that valley in 1980. It's a small valley ringed by hills. Mm -hmm. And so we're talking about a relatively local area experiencing 
either 24-hour period of darkness or a 24-hour period of light. Mm. Now, again, most English translations will put it as extra light. But as mm. I've engaged my peers who are fluent in biblical Hebrew, they say it's more likely it's talking about an extended period of darkness. Mm. And given that this is, uh, uh, you know, the Negev Desert, mm-hmm. it's probably more important uh, for Joshua's troops to be cooled because yeah. it's really hot and dry in that desert. Right. And so right. they argue that darkness. Now, as a physicist, I could imagine the way God performed that miracle is to bring about an extraordinary meteorological event, undoubtedly a miracle, uh, because although those kinds of events happen in uh, you know tropical and uh, temperate rainforests, they never happen in a desert. Mm-hmm. But to mm-hmm. get that happening in a desert, where it becomes in the middle of the day as dark as night, that would be an extraordinary miracle. And so. Uh, to me, what's more outstanding is the miracle I see uh, in Hezekiah's lifetime. Yeah, the steps. For the shadow of the sundown. Shadow, right. 40 minutes of time. Yeah. And what makes it particularly extraordinary, the miracle is also seen in Babylon, not mm. just in Jerusalem, but in Babylon as well. Yeah. No longer talking a small valley. We're talking an area uh, of about 600 miles minimum. Wow. Uh, that had this miracle. What I find interesting about the text in Isaiah, it says that the priests of Marduk saw this miracle in Babylon and said, our God can't do those things. This has to be the real God, the God that the people in Jerusalem worship, and actually sent a delegation to Jerusalem to investigate the miracle. Wow. Now, in that case, I don't think we're looking at meteorology. Mm. We're looking, by the way, it's a shadow moving back. So I think God supernaturally intervened with some kind of light to push the shadow back. Okay. Most people, Bible scholars I've talked to uh, who are fluent in biblical Hebrew say, we think it's God's Shekinah glory uh, shining in both downtown Babylon and downtown Jerusalem to make the shadow go back. Which it certainly could, you know. But... God can do that. Yeah. And this is important when we engage atheists. Atheists, when they look at the Bible, think that God's limited to only one kind of miracle. Yeah. No, he's got a treasure chest That's of right. different miraculous tools he can use at different times and different places. Okay. So I look at the miracle of Joshua as being quite distinct from the miracle we see recorded in Isaiah 38. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for that. What do you say to those who would object to, to to your objections that this wasn't a global flood by pointing to the fact that the water, the earth was once covered totally in water in uh, Genesis chapter 1. Is it not possible for it, that to happen at least one other time? Well, I believe that's referring to the primordial earth. After all, it's talking about earth before the six days of creation. Right. And I can tell you as an astronomer, if you've got a planet, the mass of the earth, and about that distance from its host star, it's going to begin with an ocean that's thousands of miles deep. Mm. Matter of fact, we're discovering Earth-like planets. And if we can measure their water content, it comes in at 500 times greater than what the Earth has. Mm. And that's because water is extremely abundant in the universe. And so the Earth began with a huge amount of water. Uh, But we now know, thanks to our studies of the moon, in order to explain why the moon has the features that it does, small planet orbited by a single gigantic moon, the moon had to be the 
uh, result of a merger event between two big terrestrial planets. Mm. We actually got a name for the other planet. We call it Thea. So early in Earth's history, there was this merger event, and that merger event caused Earth to lose virtually all of its atmosphere and all of its water. Now, it also tells us in Genesis 1-2 that darkness covered the whole surface of the Earth. And there was water over the whole surface of the Earth. And so the primordial Earth would have had an atmosphere 200 times thicker than what we have today. Mm. And uh, an atmosphere that thick will not let any visible light through to the surface. Mm. Just like with Venus. Venus I was going to say Venus, yeah. 90 times thicker than ours. Right. And the only light that makes it through to the surface and the visible part of the spectrum is at the far end of the red. Uh, correct Everything me if I'm else blocked out. Just to interject about Venus, because you've made the analogy, because that is what Earth's twin, right? People people say right. planetary, evolutionary planetary theories that I've read suggest that uh, at one point we were like Venus. Um, but yes. that, just to give our listeners a perspective on what we're talking about here, we're talking about atmospheric pressures on Venus, on the surface of Venus, because the atmosphere is so thick, of something like what we would find at the bottom of the Mariana Trench in in, the, in our deepest oceans. Is that correct? Well, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but it is enough <laughs> that, uh, it, I mean, it's many, many times greater than what we experience. Yeah. It, crushed, it crushed the Russian probe in, the, what was it, the 70s or something, that that, that Russian probe was on the surface, took yeah, a picture? I mean, it wouldn't be able, I mean, the air pressure would be so intense, you could not have animals in the face. Couldn't walk around, it. right, right. So, so, for example, we can only breathe if the atmospheric pressure is no more than three times what we have right now. Yeah. Once you get above three times, it's lungs like, can't function. Right. There's no uh, right. So it's it's interesting. One of the we could talk about fine tuning all day long, but but in order for us to have creaturely life that can breathe in the air, our atmosphere has to be not only the percentage of of the ingredients of our atmosphere, the percentages of nitrogen and all that stuff, but but the the, the density of the atmosphere and and, and how air we, pressure must be fine tuned. Absolutely. I mean, this is phenomenal. Well, this is three either way. Lungs lungs fail to function, or you can't walk, or you know whatever. This is this is right. a fantastic. So okay, so we're. The, the 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 reason for the the water all over the earth at first was was primordial earth were were the physics of of our planet different dr ross or were they were they the same physics or what were they was this water world if you will um no no reference to the kevin costner movie but was this water world in genesis the same physics were going on or was there was there a was the earth smaller bigger what what's the what's your understanding no, the same laws of physics were operating the primordial Earth was a little bit smaller than the present Earth because okay. the merger with Thea increased our mass. Uh, but that merger also eradicated almost all of our water and atmosphere. Oh, okay. And that was a good thing because the primordial Earth had way too thick of an atmosphere and way too deep of an ocean. And so getting a thin layer of water in the surface of the Earth actually made it possible for plate tectonics to produce continents. Okay. And by the way, we now have evidence that uh, the continents appeared rapidly. We used to think it was a gradual process of continent building. Right. We now know that uh, the second or the first great oxygenation event coincided uh, with over 90% of the continents formation that we see today. Okay. So what Genesis uh, Creation Day 3 states uh, back in 2018, uh, scientific discoveries proved that it got it right. Okay. Well, uh, we have just a couple of more. I want to wrap up with this one because this is a biggie. Uh, this is probably the most contested thing between 
uh, I would say the young earth and old earth camps. And I want to kind of uh, interject with this, and you're probably familiar with the story, given as much research as you've done. You mentioned at the beginning of our broadcast uh, the, the various hundreds of different legends of, of a flood story. Uh, that exist all, almost more that more pervasive than creation stories. And in fact, That's correct. That's correct. I'm, I'm reading a book pervasive. right now that I'll be interviewing a gentleman at the end of this week about flood stories, about about Native American uh, First Nation people flood stories in South America, Canada, and North America, or in the United States area. One of them I ran across, and I keep running across in the research, is this this oral tale of the Hualapai of northern Arizona who inhabited in and around the Grand Canyon region. And they have this tale of a flood legend that would, that preexisted the conquistadores arrivals or any missionary contacts. Uh, the same with the Tarahumara Indians of the Copper Can- Canyon region in in Mexico. They, they're very isolated from not only one another but from Europeans. Um, they all have this this idea of a flood legend um, because the Copper Canyon and the Grand Canyon are very uh, geologically very similar, and so their flood legends are directly related. Uh, to to the the topography of the canyon. The canyon exists because there was a flood. And so their ancestral tales that they tell um, incorporate, well, why this big hole in the ground? And and so, um, you know, of course, young earth creationists and and Tim Clary, Dr. Tim, um, advocate that the Grand Canyon is evidence of a global flood. And and here's some Native American stories that seem to corroborate with that. What's your position on the canyon? Well, take a look at Genesis 10 and 11. Uh, those two chapters tell us that humanity after the flood was local, and then God scattered them over the whole face of the earth. You've got this interesting reference in Genesis 10.25 that it happened in the days of Peleg uh, when the earth was divided. And I believe that's a reference to the breaking of the Bering Land Bridge. Okay. During the last ice age, the continents, with the sea levels being three to 400 feet lower, it was easy to migrate from one continent to the other. Uh, But at the close of the last ice age, uh, the sea levels rose, and they rose very rapidly, which basically cut off the people in North and South America from the people in Asia. The Bering Strait became Mm -hmm. impassable. So the world was indeed divided in the days of Pele. But we would expect that as God scattered these peoples, out of the Persian Gulf, Mesopotamian region, mm-hmm. into all the locales of the world, they would have taken their creation stories with them. They would have taken their flood stories with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I would anticipate no matter where you go on planet Earth, you're going to find a flood story. Okay, It's more recent uh, than the creation event. And so I would expect that to be more, perva- or more pervasive than okay. the creation stories because it's more recent. But they took the... And the fact that we see it everywhere tells us something must have happened of, uh, you know, uh, catastrophic proportions Yeah, yeah. Uh, sometime in the early history of humanity okay. to explain why all these different cultures uh, have a flood story. What about as the far can- as the Grand Canyon? Yes. Goes, yes, yes. Yeah. No, I, what we do know about uh, the Southwest at that time is you were having a tectonic uplift taking place. Okay. You also had the Colorado River. And so as the uplift took place, you got the Colorado River cutting through that. Okay. And that happens in other places of the world, too, where you got tectonic uplift and a major erosive river occurring. You're going to get a deep canyon. Okay. The Grand Canyon is not the only deep canyon on planet Earth. Right, right. And, uh, and it's not always tectonic uplift. I mean, Hawaii, uh, you've got uh, volcanic uplift. Mm-hmm. 
and you got rivers wherever you got a lot of rain coming down mm-hmm. or snow melt you're going to get uh, these canyons being carved so the grand canyon is not alone okay. we see similar canyons like that everywhere but it only happens uh where you've got either a lot of rainfall or melt uh, snow and ice melting mm-hmm. uh, and you've got some uh, natural uplift phenomena occurring either tectonic uplift or volcanic uplift occurring okay and so all that and i'm sure you've interviewed people who are experts on the geology of the grand canyon that will confirm all this i mean we've got the radiometric dating to tell us exactly over what time period all this took place and given that the laws of physics don't change we can trust those radiometric dates now, I would be amiss if I didn't uh, ask on behalf of uh, my young Earth creationist friends. They'll say, come on, Dr. Ross, uh, you're assuming millions of years, and uh, you need millions of years for a river to do the carving. If we don't have millions of years, you need a catastrophe to happen quickly. Aren't you just presuming a template in order to explain the, the way the canyon works? Well, it takes time to carve these things out. If you have a very sudden massive flood, it doesn't do that much. Okay. I mean, we got examples of that in the Mississippi Valley. Yeah, you mentioned that earlier. Huge flood that took place 30 years ago. Today, you go to that region, and we see no evidence of the flood. I mean, we're talking 50 feet lasting four and a half months, mm. and just 30 years later, we can't find a trace of that. In order to get long-lasting geological evidence, you need a significant passage of time. Okay. So I would argue that what we see in the Grand Canyon does fit that this was taking place over a long period of time. Okay. And, you know, well, we can see that elsewhere, uh, that whenever you've got a rapid flood, you see local evidence for a period of time. I mean, certainly in the Mississippi Valley, they saw evidence at that time. Mm. But now there's been enough running of water through that area where that evidence basically has been washed away. Okay. Okay. What do you say about, uh, I, this just came to mind, what do you say about the way, uh, the, the, the canyon-like uh, geography that was formed after Mount St. Helens? This seems to be a favorite young earth creationist argument, that here we have something like a canyon that was formed very quickly. Does this have any relevance to, to, to flood geology? Well, they basically cite Mount St. Helens to try to critique the radiometric dating methods that are used. Okay. However, each radiometric isotope has a range where you're going to get a reliable date. You typically have to be within a factor of seven of the radiometric half-life. And what we see in Mount St. Helens is you've got young Earth creationists using the wrong radioisotopes to say, hey, the ages don't work. Uh, This radiometric tool told us it was several million years old, and we know this happened just 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Well, they used the wrong radiometric isotope. Mm. Uh, You've got to use an isotope that's within a factor of seven of the actual date. So like carbon-14, carbon-14 is useless to date something that's only 300 years old. Right. It's also useless to date something that's 100,000 years old. Okay. You've got to be within range of the 5,715-year half-life. Got it. Same thing with uranium dating. Uranium dating is great for something that's billions of years old. Mm -hmm. It's useless for something that's only millions of years old. Okay. And there's been many critiques in the published literature on the way young earth creationists have misinterpreted uh, the evidence uh, from uh, Mount St. Helens. Well, you are you are so much more charitable than a lot of people I've talked to who wouldn't say misinterpreted, but deliberately or intentionally are, are manipulating the science. And that's one thing that I'm, I'm appreciative of what the, your approach to this, Dr. Ross, is 
Well, I've gotten to know these people. I don't think they're being deliberate. Mm. They're basically taking a point of view uh, that we know that the Earth is only thousands of years old. Mm. How can we interpret the scientific data to fit that interpretation? Mm -hmm. And so when I engaged them, I said, why are you so confident on your assumption that it's only uh, mm -hmm. thousands of years old? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I say the same thing to atheists who say, well, we know there is no God. Therefore, we're going to interpret the entire record of nature right. from the perspective that there is no God. Right. And so you want to know why they believe the things they do. It's their starting assumption. Yeah. yeah. So I always challenge people, okay, why are you so convinced your starting assumption is correct? Right. Right. Well, and it's like with, with my skeptic friends, um, you know, I try to do this with as much respect and humor as I can combine together. Sometimes it comes across snarky, but, but in truth, you know, what does the Bible say about it? In, in the end, what are people going to do when Jesus comes back? They're going to cry out to the rocks. And a lot of, a lot of my secular and atheist friends will use, I hear it all the time, I'm sure you have too, from your atheists that you talk to, the rocks show us that, that God, there's no, there's no flood. Right there's the, the rocks show us this, and so we use modern geology, kind of to to be safe to 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 hide ourselves from from God's judgment. Because if we can say there's no flood in the rocks, we can say there's no flood. We can say there's no judgment. We can say there's no God. But but in the well, end, that's here's what I say to my atheist friends. Given that the text tells us that the flood lasted only thirteen months, and we're talking something that happened during the last ice age, we would not expect to find any scientific evidence. Uh, for that flood is too short of a period of time mm. and it's too far back in time. On the other hand, I can cite you a geologist that says we have found evidence for a berm at the mouth of the Gulf of Hormuz. Mm. And, uh, you know, if that berm were, was to break, have a sudden breaking, it would cause a massive rush of Indian Ocean water into the Persian Gulf mm. and the Mesopotamian Plain. That's the only evidence I know of geologically that can be cited in support of the Bible's teaching on the flood. Or as I say to my atheist friends, given what the biblical text says, we do not anticipate to find any more evidence than that. Okay. Um, and I know we, I just realized we didn't, we didn't even touch on this. And so maybe you could, we could talk about it later or something, but it's in your book, I would imagine, uh, dealing with the fossils in young earth versus old earth. Um, do, do not, in, in, in a nutshell, do fossils point us to a, a global catastrophe? Is that part of the, the evidence or would you say that's something else? Well, uh, my friends who are global flood proponents will say, look at all the seashells on top of the Himalayan mountains or mm -hmm. even on top of Mount Everest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They say that's got to be evidence for a global flood. And my response is, well, it's actually evidence for the Indian subcontinent at one time being attached to the island of Madagascar, breaking off and rapidly heading at a rate of 22 centimeters per year uh, towards Eurasia. And when it hit Eurasia, it crumpled up the seafloor that existed between the Indian subcontinent and Eurasia, and those are the Himalayas. And by the way, we have geophysical evidence that that collision is still taking place. The velocity today is only five centimeters per year, but it's such that the Himalayas are getting taller with every year that goes by hmm. because of the ongoing collision. And given that the Himalayas are made up of seafloor that once existed between the Indian subcontinent and Asia, we would expect to find seashells on top of all the Himalayan mountains. Okay. All right. 
Well, thank you so much, Dr. Ross. I know we barely scratched the surface of this meaningful and very important discussion. I appreciate your demeanor and candidness and compassion towards the Young Earth Camp because it is so important as believers in the church that we can agree on the hermeneutics and understand who Jesus Christ is, the Lord Jesus who has come to save us all, who put Noah in the ark and put us in him before the foundation of the world. As you said earlier, redemption took place before the creation of the world. We were in Christ before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. And so there's redemptive acts. We, we can see the poetry, I guess, if you would, you know, the Hebrew poetry of the text and the Yahweh's use of poetry in in nature, which I think is is also beautifully divinely well, earlier poetic. Earlier, you cited that uh, the world will know we are Christians by our love for one another. Yes, yeah. I think the best way that can be demonstrated is when we show love towards one another when we strongly disagree with one another. Right. But right. the other critical thing is notice the extent of the flood is not in any of the creeds of the church. Yeah. Yeah. This is not a, a belief that's essential for salvation. That's right. That's right. And I tell people, if it's not in the creeds, uh, let's not get too upset at one another. That's right. We're dealing with the non-essentials of the Christian faith, not the essentials. That's right. And God wants us to disagree. It's through the disagreements that we can learn things that we otherwise wouldn't learn. That's right. So I look at the disagreements as a healthy thing within the church. Right. If we you have disagree in love. Yeah. And if you have the, the solid foundational... Uh, if you're in Christ and you have your, your, you're striving to know the word, rightly dividing the word of truth, then you have this maturity, uh, a spirit maturity, the solid food of, of spiritual maturity, to be able to disagree in love with your fellow Christians about the technical aspects of creation, which I think you do so well, and I'm so appreciative that we're able to have you on today, Dr. Ross. Thank you so much. Uh, My pleasure. For, for your work for the kingdom and, and for everything that you do for, for Jesus and for his glory. Uh, your ministry has touched, as you know, many, who knows how many people. You know, you, you've really brought uh, a much-needed voice to this science versus creation, science versus Christianity, you know, how do we understand Scripture. We may not agree with everything with each other, but we do it in love, and we do it all, First Corinthians 10.31, we do all to the glory of God. Parting thoughts, Dr. Ross, and we'll wrap up here. Well, I love your haircut. Oh, thank you. <laughs> We're matching today. Yeah, one one day in a couple of years, it's it's starting to recede up here. So uh, uh, I'm uh, entropy is going on right above me as we speak. It's sort of follicle. Yeah, in this world, you'll have thermodynamics. <laughs> but be over, be be of good cheer. I have overcome the second law. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> That's a great way to end it. All right. Thank you, sir. Thank you.